You know what happens when you flip the light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, and welcome to No Power Podcast. Really excited that we've got today's guest, Travis Kavula, who's the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs for NRG Energy, which is one of the country's largest energy providers. Travis is basically a genius. He's the youngest regulatory commissioner in Montana's history when he was elected to that job at just 26 years old. And he was there for about eight years before he headed over to R Street and the Beltway to go be a think tank and energy expert. One thing that's really clear is Travis really believes in the value of competitive power markets and retail choice so that customers can shop around for their power supplies. I think that'll make him really interesting to our listeners. So for our listeners who are less familiar, this retail choice is basically about you having a choice more than just your local utility to provide service to you, but being able to actually shop around to several people that can offer you the best rate and the best plan for you and your family. Exactly. The opposite of that would be a monopoly utility, where there'd be one utility that serves all of the customers in their franchise territory, and there's pros and cons to each. So that's something that we definitely look forward to hearing from Travis in this episode about. He's really passionate about integrating the demand side, incorporating the customer. And he also dealt with a lot of really complex issues after the Texas freeze, which happened in February of 2021. Yeah, that was a big deal. During a winter storm, Uri, Texas was literally at the brink of quite literally running out of power. Frankly, Houston was almost fully blacked out for a period of time. There was huge, extremely high fuel prices and power prices throughout the storm there. And it has definitely been a shock to the system down in Texas and certainly has ripple effects elsewhere. So very excited for uh, for Travis's conversation. I think there's a lot of really good stuff in here and hope you guys enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us, Travis. Really excited about the conversation today. Do you maybe want to give us a little of your background? What are you up to with NRG? What are you guys thinking about? Sure. So I'm a former, as Noah's former state regulatory commissioner. I was elected to that office at the tender age of 26. So early career utility regulator, not quite sprung from the womb, fully formed in the subject matter of utility <laughs> regulation. But nevertheless, it was my first job in the industry. After that, I headed up a think tank's energy program, the R Street Institute, before coming over to NRG. During my service on the Montana Commission, I helped get the Western energy imbalance market started, had some role in regional transmission planning out West, and now at NRG, I lead a team of about 20 people who are involved both in the wholesale and retail markets wherever in North America NRG has business. That had to be just like an out-of-the-gate job with that type of decisional capacity and all of like the detail, weedy, heady topics that we cover on in the energy space. Like, how did you find yourself in that space? And like, were you naturally inclined towards energy? I mean, I feel like it would have been a really difficult jump to just go from, hi, I'm a grad student to congratulations, I'm not sharing up a utility commission in a state like Montana. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I joked it was like going to grad school with a gavel. 
I basically approached the jobs from learning the fundamentals. Once I was elected, a friend of mine sent me Alfred Kahn's textbook, The Economics of Regulation. And in between being elected to office, which Montana is one of the states that elects its regulators, and uh, taking office, I consumed that textbook and started to read other publications of the Regulatory Assistance Project, neighbor some other outlets to try to study up. So I had a great set of mentors who are sort of the professional staff on the Montana Commission, as well as at NARUC. But yeah, to be fully candid, I knew nothing about the job coming in. I'd been drawn to it because my hometown had really gone off the rails with what today would be called a community choice aggregator. That's not the terminology that was used back in the day and had signed a bunch of highly favorable fixed rate retail contracts with the city's commercial and industrial consumer interests even while not managing to secure at all their wholesale cost of supply. So when I moved back to Montana for what I had imagined would be a summertime stint, a friend of mine who was then on the city council there talked me into uh, fighting the good fight and calling out the emperor who's wearing no clothes. And that was my first introduction to energy. I guess I found it interesting because to me, it was an avenue into politics. That was an attractive place to be, but it also allowed you to have some depth in your engagement in the policy landscape rather than spreading yourself so thin, which you inevitably have to do if you're, say, a member of a state legislature voting on a thousand bills, touching on every conceivable subject matter in any given legislative session. So at some point during my eight-year career at the commission, I sort of faced a fork in the road of whether to continue with electoral politics or whether to continue going deep on the subject matter at hand, and I chose the latter. So, so Travis, how does your current role fit into the energy landscape? What are you guys working on, and what do you spend a lot of your time reflecting on? Yeah. So toward the end of my time at the Montana Commission, I wrote a long and sometimes misunderstood essay called There Is No Free Market in Electricity. Can There Ever Be? for the quarterly journal American Affairs. And I'm very impressed when people come up to me, tell me that they've read this thing, and then sometimes horrified <laughs> by what they say next, because the title is Aspirational, one hopes that there could be a freer market in electricity and not defeatist in the sense of embracing some sort of inevitable return to the good old days of monopoly utilities, uh, good old days that never really existed in the first place. So the essay nevertheless concedes that the nature of our industry is one that's replete with regulation in a way that few other industries are. And it's true that even market participants like NRG, whose fortunes don't depend typically on monopoly cost of service regulation, nevertheless exist in a market where they're business opportunities are substantially informed by the shape of markets that government has defined for them. So that's where your handy vice president of regulatory affairs comes in, is to give strategic advice and to help propose policy reforms that further open those markets, realizing that the essential nature of the commodity that electricity and gas businesses serve mean that regulation will inevitably attend the business and it cannot fully ever be liberalized. So broadly speaking, I mean, when we think about the kind of the wholesale markets that we have now, they've roughly been in their current state for, let's call it 20 years-ish. They're kind of a turn of the millennia type of construct. How are they doing? Are they working well, working as intended? If you think about the universe back in the 2000s to where we are now, do you look at it and go like, ah, that trajectory is exactly where I thought we would be 23 years later. How are they working? I think in their basic function of trying to optimize the dispatch of power plants across a diverse set of owners and increasing the diversity of ownership and ensuring that 
capital investors and not a captive set of consumers where the risk of investment, the markets have succeeded on all of those fronts. And I think there's fairly strong empirical evidence when you compare the kind of before and after production costs of markets that are pre-RTO and post-RTO, you see substantial efficiency gains through eliminating out-of-merit order dispatch and by promoting the commitment and dispatch of resources to serve load in one territory that might not be its native load. So I think those are all successes. I think a lot of the stuff that has been overlaid because of the nature of RTO's political economy can sometimes complexify that ultimate conclusion. I think transmission costs have seemingly tended to rise more quickly in restructured RTO environments. And of course, for consumers who care primarily about their retail bill, whatever its components may be, that's a relevant consideration. But I wouldn't say the jury is out. I would say we know that RTOs can drive efficiencies. And we also know, I think, that the demonopolization of the industry at retail can value and respect consumer preferences in a way that having monopoly gatekeepers simply cannot do. That much is intuitive and doesn't require a lot of deep analysis. I guess what I'm seeing today is interesting because you continue to have a pattern of conversation about starting up new RTOs, but you don't have as much conversation about terminating retail monopolies, even where the new RTOs are started. And I guess I do go back to some degree to Pat Wood's observation that it's really difficult to have an effectively competitive market at wholesale if you don't have one at retail. It ends up looking like a bunch of local monopoly operating companies trying to optimize assets that, at the end of the day, ultimately are still cost of service regulated and have a guaranteed return and protection against stranded asset risk at the expense of a captive set of consumers. So there, I think you do have to award a kind of incomplete grade. So Travis, you also mentioned at some point that NRG is a member of a new trade association called Real that's, I think, trying to solve some of these issues. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Real is the Retail Energy Advancement League, headed up by a really dynamic CEO, Chris Urkeley, and we're excited about its formation. It's really intended to raise the bar on retail competition in this industry. Right now, I'll just give a quick example. Right now, I live in Maryland today, a state that does have competitive retail markets. I am able to, and I do, select an electricity and gas provider that is not my incumbent utility, but each and every month I continue to get bills issued by the incumbent utility. And you turn to page three or four, and hiding out on the back page of the bill is the retail supplier and its charges. So there's a lack of visibility because of the way these retail markets have been structured to actually promote the competitors in the field that does not exist in any other industry that was formerly regulated and now open up to competition. So reforms like that, together with also raising the bar and making sure that appropriate standards of conduct are maintained in the retail market, should, I think, improve the quality throughout of the retail market. That's the type of thing we hope that Real can be working on in the years to come. Do you think that that will enhance demand-side participation? Yes, I absolutely do. I think that we've been really good in the wholesale energy markets about 
having a highly dynamic competition on the supply side of the system. But electricity has, in many ways, lacked a genuinely two-sided market for demand. And there need to be, just like there are different competitive generators, there need to be competitive retailers that try to reach into the demand side in order to activate that demand flexibility. I think ideally, they would be retailers who act as the load-serving entity and have the duty of supplying the commodity service to the end-use customer and thus can optimize around the contractual obligation they've taken on relative to that. They could also be demand response or DER aggregators who are trying to somehow pull elements of demand flexibility out of the customer's home and jerry-rig them into the wholesale markets as proxy supply resources or have them participate in more kludgy ways in utility-run programming. But I think the gold standard would really be having demand act as demand and have a set of retailers who are trying to leverage consumers' demand flexibility. And that, of course, becomes all the more important as you have a supply stack that shows a greater level of intermittency. If you're state policymakers who have decided to either constrain supply because you don't want, say, additional natural gas pipelines, and then pass 100% clean energy policies that'll primarily be fulfilled through intermittent supply, it really is an obligation upon you to make sure that the demand side can become more active. And that requires retail market reform. So by the way, Chris is a former colleague and a friend. Great selection for that role. I think he's going to do a wonderful job in that capacity. I was wondering if, as you're thinking about this, is there a particular sort of wholesale to retail model that you would say, look, let's just take this and rinse and repeat it in every other jurisdiction works great, whether it's Texas or Maryland or somewhere else. Is there sort of like a gold standard that we can point to and say like, cool, if we all did it this way, it would work so much better than it does now? Yeah, let me talk, I guess, about Texas, since that's where NRG is headquartered, and just give, it's not an unqualified success in the retail market structure, but one of the things that it has going for it is the fact that retailers do own the bill. So if you shop in the Texas market, you receive a bill from the retailer, and the retailer purchases and becomes responsible financially for the receivables of the transmission and distribution rate elements. And as a result of that, plus a significant nudge on the part of the state government for consumers to shop, you have well more than 90% of all residential customers who actively shop in the retail competitive market in Texas. And as more customers shop, you can imagine the marketplace becomes more vibrant, less scammy, and more valuable to consumers. So that's a success. They could do a better job in terms of allowing retailers to intermediate certain rate designs set at the transmission level. So for example, ERCOT transmission costs are allocated on the basis of the four coincident peak hours of the summer months in ERCOT. And if as a commercial and industrial customer, you're able to avoid using energy during those hours, you pay no transmission costs whatsoever. However, the PUC has decided to flatten that price signal for residential consumers. So residential consumers simply end up paying a cents per kilowatt hour charge for transmission that does not bear any resemblance to the upstream for CP cost allocation. As you can imagine, that hampers demand response opportunities and makes demand response less valuable to residential customers, even when it's highly valuable to say, cryptocurrency miners in the States. So there's a lot of work there that can be done. But generally, I would go to Texas in terms of a well-designed retail market. You can go abroad for other examples. I think Australia, Alberta 
are good examples of restructured retail markets that really do try to promote the basic relationship and make more visible that relationship between the retailer and the end use consumer. What about Australia makes it so much better? Like, what are the lessons learned there? Primarily, some of these same retail market structure decisions that I've already discussed. It does also have a very dynamic energy-only wholesale market that allows retailers to package together demand-side innovations that obtain a lot of value from end-use customers because of the volatility of Australia's energy pricing and the closure of a lot of fossil plants, at least in certain states in Australia. So those things, I think, collectively have made it into a dynamic market. In some sense, it's kind of a postcard from the future for a market that is similarly designed, like Texas, of what it might become, the good and the bad. So you've been talking a lot about sort of demand response, which to kind of maybe level set for some of our listeners out there, what we're talking about is whether it's through a particular technology or a change in behavior, it's an economic incentive for folks that are on the retail side to not use energy when power prices are very high. It can happen sort of directly if you think about like a big factory, like a commercial industrial customer. Maybe they turn the factory off during high price periods. It can also happen automatically, like say your technology-enabled thermostat might decide to turn your air conditioning up so you're using less energy during a period of time there. And it seems like one of the focuses for you, Travis, is on maximizing that sort of demand side potential. And so if you think about it from your perspective, like what is the pathway to sort of get there? Is it just purely adopting kind of regulatory reforms that sort of create a better linkage between the retail and wholesale markets? Is there some piece of technology that's the limiting factor there? Or how do we kind of unlock or activate more of that demand side participation in these markets? Well, in many places, we have managed to tear down one significant hardware barrier to doing this, and that's by the introduction of advanced metering infrastructure, which isn't ubiquitous in the United States, but at this point, 75% of all customers have a smart meter that's capable of two-way communication and dialing in prices to end-use consumers' homes and businesses. And when you're talking about an advanced meter, you're talking about like the energy meter outside of somebody's house, right? It's able to sort of read the prices and to respond automatically. Is that what we're thinking? about for smart metering? Yes, that's right. So 75% of customers have smart meters now, and it's uneven across the United States. It's interesting. It doesn't follow conventional political lines all the time. There's a lot of red states with a lot of smart meters, some blue states, surprisingly, with few smart meters. But we're getting to a place where the hardware is becoming ubiquitous, and that will allow prices to be communicated to end-use consumers. Unfortunately, we still have only single-digit percentages of customers enrolled either in prices that are time-varying in nature or that convey any kind of incentive or rebate associated with consumer activity to reduce demand during those high-priced times. So smart meters, dumb rates. And that's going to be something that needs to change over the course of time. Competition can fill in some of that to the extent retail competition exists. We have marginable opportunities associated with reducing our costs of goods sold to consumers during those high-priced energy times, but it is a question of regulatory policy in terms of transmission and distribution. And over the course of the last decade, we've seen 
this great switcheroo where it used to be the case a decade ago that production and generation costs were a majority of consumers' bills, say, in the Eastern RTOs. And now you're seeing, with the exception of only a handful of utilities, a reversal of that, where delivery costs make up the bulk of a consumer's bill on any given month, and generation costs are actually the minority, with the asterisk, of course, for last year with the gas price blowout. So as that happens, I think you do need to make sure that you're pricing those network elements, the transmission and distribution costs, in some way that is time-varying. There's a big debate that goes on about that over whether they should be collected from a lump sum fixed charge assessed to a customer. But I think the reality that all of the RTOs are forecasting a lot of incremental capital expenditures associated with T&D to meet new peaking demand in the presence of electrification suggests that we need to bake in a marginal cost signal in the network pricing that people pay, both on the energy side, which comes naturally because we know the marginal costs that are present there, but also on the transmission and distribution rates. And that fundamentally is a regulatory question for transmission involving FERC, as well as state regulators, because they're responsible for how allocated transmission costs are expressed in retail pricing and exclusively the jurisdiction of retail regulators, state regulators for distribution costs, which FERC doesn't touch at all. And unfortunately, despite authorizing billions upon billions of dollars in investment in smart meters, utility regulators have not been great about actually ensuring that they're operationalized in any way to enhance the retail customer experience or to try to drive demand flexibility. And now I really want a shirt that says smart meters, dumb rates. (laughs) I just, I love that. How is that not already a t-shirt? Seriously. We need to get it. Yeah. My three-year-old does have a t-shirt courtesy of Ari Pesco that says just and reasonable, which let me just say (laughs) does not describe his temperament (laughs) on many occasions. But nevertheless, I'm all about the kind of weird sloganeering sourced from the utility sector for children's t-shirts. I totally agree. I mean, I see a whole line of merch, right? We can have shirts, koozies, the whole bag. If this whole regulatory affairs thing doesn't work out, I might see marketing in your future, Travis. I, I mean, think Under Armour's going to pick this up. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm making a note for our marketing communications people at NRG that maybe they can help make this happen. Every toddler needs that a Justin awesome. Reasonable. My kids certainly need a Justin Reasonable shirt. Yeah, seriously. Again, it's aspirational. That's you know, right. the, so you put them in the shirt and then you hope the conduct uh, follows. Can it have a parenthetical, a WTF parenthetical underneath it? Or is that just way too wrong? <laughs> that may be going a bit far. <laughs> Maybe another shirt. I believe in a uniform clearing price. Yes. I don't know. I absolutely love it. That is so funny. So in terms of kind of the smart grade dumb rates, we've figured out that it sounds like, in your view, Texas is doing a pretty good job syncing up their retail construct with the wholesale market that ERCOT runs. Alberta has a vibrant competitive wholesale market. Seems to look like that is another area of focus for you for doing a good job here. Let's chat for a little bit about the world's largest power market, at least in terms of revenues or billings per year, PJM. How are things going over there? Yeah, so starting at the retail level, it's definitely a mixed bag with some states that have elected retail competition and some that have not. All of the states that have elected retail competition to some degree or another, have some of the flaws that I've earlier described about not trying to get retailers more visible and not leveraging the competitive retail market as probably one should. So let let us take that as read. On the wholesale market side, I'd say 
mixed signals. I mean, we're simultaneously seeing a bunch of conventional resource retirements that has led PJM to issue alarming white papers, but then the prices coming out of PJM's capacity market don't match the alarm that PJM is sounding. So we're in this kind of weird netherworld where low prices are driving retirements, people are concerned about long-term resource adequacy, but the prices haven't yet picked up to reflect those retirements, which are only now starting to happen in mass. So I think the question becomes, as prices inevitably start to rise again, are you actually going to have new entry nimbly enter the market, or is there going to be some lag that keeps prices both inflated and also raises questions about resource adequacy. I think to some degree that's what we saw occur in MISO, which is frankly a more poorly designed capacity market because it has a vertical demand curve, which ignoring the niceties causes prices to either be at the ceiling or the floor, whereas PJM with a slope demand curve avoids that volatility. But I do think MISO is an example of a market where people retired a lot, possibly too much, and didn't have sufficient reliable resources to backfill, at least as recognized by the market construct they've set up for capacity. So that's what I'm looking for over the long term in PJM's capacity market, and I think a lot of people are rightly concerned about it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I guess if I think about maybe some of the differences, so when ERCOT is a single state ISO and RTO. So it exists in one place, Texas, and the Texas retail market exists in Texas. Alberta, same way. They're essentially in their single political territory there in Canada. Whereas PJM and, and MISO, the Midcontinent ISO, which is PJM's neighbor to the West, encompass a number of different states. For example, PJM stretches from Michigan all the way down to the North Carolina-Virginia border and then east to the Pennsylvania-New Jersey border with New York. It's 13 states plus the District of Columbia, which PJM treats as a state, 14 different states with very different views on energy policies. I think it's fair to say West Virginia and New Jersey have very different views on the energy universe. Is part of the challenge for a place like PJM or a place like MISO that they are a multi-state jurisdiction and that they've got a sort of answer to multiple sort of folks from different political stripes? Do they have it harder than perhaps like an Alberta or an ERCOT do where it's a single state ISO? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, there's offsetting considerations that a wider pool of loads and resources to draw upon should, on average, improve reliability, but it can also create a political economy of fraught relationships between sort of different sovereign masters at the state level, to your point, Mike. So that is a consideration. I'm not sure how you solve it. I mean, these states, Texas and Alberta, are large enough jurisdictions to be markets unto themselves while achieving a lot of the diversity benefit that one would be seeking through a multi-state RTO, whereas a lot of the PJM states are not. It's a tension that needs to be resolved. I think one of the interesting things one might observe is that, at least in MISO, the vast majority of the load is still planned through integrated resource planning at the state level. You would think they would have it figured out. And the same is true in the Western United States, which isn't encompassed by an RTO. They still have integrated resource planning where utilities are planning to meet their load with some source of generation supply. But by and by, those utilities have come to expect on the interregional dependencies to supply part of their consumer demand. So this goes to, I think, a wider point where you've heard some people evince skepticism of fully restructured RTOs, but actually the basic problem of 
relying on your neighbor for some component of your own resource adequacy is actually present in the non-RTO regions of the Western United States in some ways even more prominently than it is present in the fully restructured PJM and ISO New England. So I don't think there's any real escape from the fact that we exist in wholesale markets where trading takes place across the marketplace, whether it's a bilateral wholesale market or an RTO market. We just need to be cognizant and ideally have some kind of situational awareness and long-range capacity resource adequacy awareness of the situation various utilities find themselves in. So everyone's been talking about the energy transition. We're obviously in the middle of the energy transition. We have more gigawatts of renewables waiting to come online that are currently active serving customers. How do you describe that transition and the role you see NRG in and and the primary factors driving it? Yeah, I think the transition has been uneven. Interestingly, like our discussion of advanced meters defying the political boundaries one might expect of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Texas and California are the biggest renewable powerhouses, and I think that tells you that some combination of land mass in the case of Texas and raw political will in the case of California (laughs) wins the day. I do think there's a debate as well going on about to what degree the transition will be achieved by a mass build-out of utility-scale renewables, or how much will depend on decentralized clean energy resources that are closer to load, including things like demand flexibility that we talked about before. In terms of NRG, we're no longer anyways in the renewable development game, but we're big buyers of renewables, and we use our purchases of power purchase agreements and financial hedges and ownership of legacy fleet in order to supply in an economically efficient way the retail base of customers that we are under a contractual obligation to serve. So we watch carefully things like our counterparties' supply chain difficulties, put out regular RFOs that request offers from the market on solar, wind, storage, and we keep a close eye. Simply putting aside whether or not you think the policies of tax credits and everything else are a good idea, and I certainly have questions about it, they have bought down the cost of solar and storage in a lot of markets to the point where they are the marginal resource, seemingly, that a competitive company would buy to efficiently serve their load and hedge their cost structure. So that has been the net of net effect of public policy, I think, as well as the sort of geographies in which we at least operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I also think it circles back in with your prior point about sort of juxtaposing MISO, which is most of the states in MISO, frankly, all then about half of Illinois and a little bit of Michigan, vertically integrated, no retail choice, where the utilities are sort of planning what their resource mix is going to look out decades into the future. PJM, next door neighbor, deregulated, trying to use markets to achieve kind of this energy transition through competitive prices to incent investment and both the resources that folks want in terms of making sure they've got green power and the things that your customers are looking for, but also reliability. And I think it's interesting that both versions of the model seem to be struggling with the transition. Like all of a sudden, PJM woke up a couple of months ago and said, oh my gosh, we are accelerating the transition to a rate where 2030 might be difficult for us from a reliability perspective. MISO is forecasting a resource deficiency, frankly, as early as effectively like next year in lots of its jurisdictions, and meaningfully so. We're talking about tens of maybe even hundreds of gigawatts of shortfall here. Is it a symptom of our industry being in more flux than it has been in the past? Is this change like happening faster for us? Or is there some other force that is sort of causing these kinds of tensions or concerns that we're seeing across these different markets? 
I mean, it is in a state of flux, and I'm not sure that the industry has ever not been in a state of flux since, say, the 1950s, where America returned from war and you seem to have steady as she goes demand growth served by a lot of additional coal plants and then a civilian adaptation of nuclear technology to serve load. But even that had undercurrents that eventually came home to roost, where demand flattened out, utilities overbuilt a lot of generation and rate base, and ultimately that's what led to the restructuring of the industry that we're talking about today. The last cycle we went through where you had a lot of coal to gas switching was also accompanied by postulations about there being some kind of a reliability train wreck. In this case, as a bunch of EPA regulations came into effect that caused the shuttering of coal plants. Ultimately, we not only managed through, but it seemed to succeed pretty wildly helped out by the large amounts of gas we were able to tap through the shale revolution. So I think the question becomes, are there additional barriers that make the pace of this transition unachievable relative to those last cycles? Or if policymakers feel really under the gun and not confident that our existing institutions can facilitate the transitions occurring, are they going to do something that they may end up regretting? I mean, I can't help but notice that after the California electricity crisis, the state got involved, the the state essentially caused a bunch of new natural gas plants to be built, possibly overbuilt. And now, ironically, as some of those plants are retiring, the state is back in a capacity crunch and has done almost exactly the same thing, like commanded into being a strategic reserve, ordered the state-backed procurement of a bunch of huge batteries. They may be on their way to overbuilding again, as far as we know. So states are not often nimbly reacting to these challenges. And so from my vantage point in public policy, I think it behooves us to try to make sure that the institutions we have are more nimbly facilitating entry and exit. And if there is some option value to legacy assets that would otherwise retire, make sure that that's somehow being taken into account, but ideally within the context of a market structure and not outside of it. Travis, do you think this is the most challenging time we face in our industry? Or are there lessons learned from previous periods that we ought to be thinking, gosh, we've been in this situation before, we ought to think twice? Yeah, I actually don't think it's the most challenging time in the industry. And as a student of history and looking at it from the perspective of regulation and policymaking, I think actually probably the 1970s were more challenging than today. I realize that you have to go back a little ways to find a more challenging time. (laughs) But that era really exposed for the first time the fragility of an American economy that was codependent on energy production, that had a lot of exposure to a global energy economy and less insourcing of American energy production that we see today. And at that time, there really wasn't, for the electricity sector anyways, any tool other than government cost of service regulation to leverage to help us out. So now we do have these institutions in the form of markets that should help us coordinate and deploy capital to manage through the transition with less fundamental risk to consumers for potentially bad investments. So that actually is a leg up, I think we have versus the 1970s. And then just looking at the macroeconomic data, I mean, inflation obviously is higher than it should be today, but it's child's play compared to what people lived through with double digit percentage inflation rates back then. Mm -hmm. 
No, I absolutely agree. And I guess one thing that kind of comes to mind as we're sort of comparing these different periods of transition, whether they were kind of the economic transition in the 70s, the coal to gas transition more kind of directly of the, I don't know, 2000 aughts into the 2000 sort of teens here. One might say like from a reliability perspective, coal plants, which were the legacy assets that were going away and modern combined cycle resources look very similar. As long as they both have fuel, they can kind of operate 100% of the time. They can be dispatched up and down. They're not concerned about, say, nighttime and being able to operate or other features like that. And as we're thinking about this transition, I think a lot of what seems to get picked up in maybe the political narrative or in the press is the difference in the reliability characteristics, the keeping the lights on parts for renewable resources versus thermal assets. Put any stock in that? How are you thinking about reliability here? Is there a difference in this transition because of just innately how the resources function? Or should we just say, no, we managed the coal to gas transition fine, light stayed on, we'll manage this one too? No, I think there is a difference. I mean, in Texas is a good example of this. Whether or not the lights stay on in Texas at certain times, at least, depends on whether the state has renewable production. And when it does, that's great. You actually see incidences where Texas can be hitting peak record demands and prices are low because of the abundance of renewable energy. But when renewables aren't producing in Texas and demand is high, then prices are very high and people are scrambling. So the presence of intermittent supply definitely has complexified the question of what appropriate redundancies look like in the system. And it's also made a mockery of the way we typically calculate the adequacy of resources and things like reserve margin that we've used as sort of a rubric or cushion uh, to supply all demand under extreme conditions. And I think there's two sort of paths one can follow on this. I mean, one can take fairly administered approach to problem solving around this question and try to get resource accreditation right, like a lot of the Eastern RTOs with capacity markets are doing. Or one can realize this is a problem, but continue to try to have a more liberalized construct where resources are in effect accrediting themselves, but are being compensated for their availability during periods of real scarcity. And that's kind of the approach that I see Texas taking, for example, through its conversations about the performance credit mechanism. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between a capacity market and the performance credit mechanism, PCM, as we call it in the ERCOT market? Yeah, so the Eastern capacity markets conventionally trade forward. So the RTO comes up with an administrative demand forecast associated with all of the effective capacity that one would need to reliably serve projected customer demand, either a season or year ahead of time in the case of New York or several years ahead of time in PJM. Asterisk, some exclusions (laughs) apply (laughs) depending on whether you've delayed your auction or not, but that's the theory. So you come up with a forward projection of demand. And then on the supply side, the RTO turns around and says, well, how much as a percentage of their nameplate capacity should I allow these actors to offer in as capacity resources? And they give everyone some kind of a haircut. This becomes especially challenging with renewables, how much to allow them to offer into the market. And then that accreditation determination becomes the ceiling that they can offer in to the capacity market with. And certain resources are under a an obligation to offer their capacity if you're certain types of technologies, and certain resources are not under an obligation to offer their capacity into the market. And then 
depending on who you are, the market monitor will tell you the price that you have to offer into the capacity market. So it's highly administered. Back to the point of there is no free market. This is <laughs> this is definitely not what you would consider sort of a fully liberalized free market in capacity. But that's not the point of it. It's there to try to ensure resource adequacy on the belief that absent this administrative mechanism, the energy price signals alone would not drive reliability in that market. Right or wrong, that's the predicate of the viewpoint for these Eastern RTOs capacity markets. Now, what's being talked about in the terms of a performance credit mechanism in Texas looks differently than that. It would involve some kind of forward forecast of demand for performance credits associated with a set of hours based on historical weather modeling where the grid could expect to be in terms of demand under extreme weather conditions. But then it uses that to populate a sample of hours where performance is actually required in terms of eligible resources offers of their availability. And you don't know, and this is how it's not a forward market, you don't actually know which hours those are until after the season is over. And then you go back and say, well, these are the 15 or 30 hours that showed the most system scarcity, and we're going to award credits to the people who offered into, say, the day ahead market and made energy offers and were available and capable of performing during those stressed hours. It doesn't involve a prior accreditation of those resources. Like the forward capacity markets, it would feature a slope demand curve. So if you do end up with more supply than you reasonably need to meet extreme weather-like demand, then the price would simply reduce to zero or something close to it. It would be, in any case, not as valuable a credit mechanism. But the main difference is that it sets up a sample of hours during which performance is actually measured, as opposed to a performance scheme in the Eastern RTOs that is more sporadic in nature, but when it does bind, can bind significantly. So that's complicated, I realize, but it is, I think, Texas's way of eliminating some of the guesstimation that needs to take place that's hardwired into the Eastern RTO's capacity market, while realizing that the energy market is not necessarily producing sufficient revenues to cover the fixed costs of resources that are needed to meet reliability. And that, just to underscore, is the fundamental problem either of these designs is trying to solve. Is the market actually producing sufficient revenues to cover fixed costs of resources that are needed to meet reliability? And there's a lot of different ways of trying to get at that problem. Probably none of them are perfect, but I kind of like the direction in which Texas is going on this consideration. So maybe to try to simplify it a little bit, and tell me if I've got this right on PCM here, it almost sounds like what you're asking folks to do is to look at weather data and to kind of guess where those 15 or 30 peak hours, where the system's going to be at the top end of demand are, and they're going to bid into the market based upon their guess of where those hours are. And then they're going to cross their fingers and hope that their resource was either performing or available to perform during those periods in order to get paid. So it's almost like a pay-as-you-go program where if you get both of those things right, if you guess the right hours and then you end up at a place where your resource is in fact performing in those hours, then you get paid. And it's sort of as a after-the-fact type of settlement. Does that make sense, Travis? That's right. Yeah, it, that is correct. And it's very similar to the way transmission cost allocation in ERCOT works, where you don't 
know what the four CP hours were until after the period has ended. And people are trying to guess at what those hours are, and they reduce their loads accordingly as they believe one of the hours in probability to be approaching. So that's a cost allocation mechanism that delivers incentives to demand. This mechanism delivers incentives to supply as well as to demand, because the cost would be allocated to demand. But in terms of supply, it sends those signals, as you're describing, Mike, to try to be available and to make offers in the day-ahead market in order to be available. It's also important to point out right now, ERCOT, unlike a lot of the other RTOs, does not have a mandatory day-ahead market, and it's not 100% of all energy that's clearing in the day-ahead market. So this is also a way of trying to get people to, if they want to be paid for their reliability, to actually make offers in the day-ahead market. Because the status quo of what's happened in Texas is Texas having, even if they don't say as much, having lost faith in the real-time energy-only market as a reliability tool has been engaged in more and more and more reliability unit commitments when the system operator takes a look at the day-ahead set of commitments versus its load forecasts. And instead of letting the market work as it did in the past, it instead dragoons a lot of electric generators into commitment and production in advance of the operating day. So They've already gone away de facto from the energy-only market, so this is in some sense an attempt to marketize and reflect in the market's dynamics behavior that has already happened. Do you think that's a larger problem, though, Travis, that we're not really focused on fixing the energy market-only construct and getting the prices right there? It is a problem, and I don't think ERCOT is going to abandon an ORDC-based framework for energy scarcity pricing. And what that means is, as operating reserve demand curve, ORDC, as operating reserves fall below a certain threshold, it introduces a price adder to energy to reflect that and results in price formation that should propagate into forward energy price signals that try to impel new entry through a trade in energy rather than a trade in some other product. But the facts are what they are. I mean, you look at the control room in ERCOT and they're not, I'll put it this way, I think the people who worked in those jobs and lived through Winter Storm Uri are not fond of the idea that we can simply rely on sort of a purist energy-only market approach to this. And if Texas has essentially made that determination, I'm honestly not sure who else would not make that determination, given the Texas DNA? So this is candidly a place where I think, to some degree, my own views have changed as a result of having seen the results of Winter Storm Uri. And I don't know that we can get back to a place of sort of a pure energy-only market. In any case, that's not where we are now. And PCM is almost being offered as a solution to an energy-only market that is no longer an energy-only market in the way it actually operates. And maybe just to stitch a couple of those ideas together that you're talking about, this operating reserves demand curve, pre-winter storm Yuri, what ERCOT would try to do, what are operating reserves? They're sort of like the batter that's on deck. So what you're looking to do when you're trying to balance generation and demand in these markets is you have all of the generators that are actually providing energy. So they're on, they're operating, producing electrons, and that matches with demand. 
But you always want to know that you've got someone in the on-deck circle that can step up to the plate, right? That would be operating reserves, a generator that is in reserves that if load goes up, you can then turn that on to serve the incremental amount of load. And what Texas used to do was they would just try to send really, really high prices through their energy market to say operating reserves are getting low. We're running out of players on our bench here. And there's a lot of value here as we get scarce. We get approaching the point where we run out of extra generators to turn on. The theory was that you would make enough money during these very rare but very expensive periods that people would invest around it. What we saw in Winter Storm Uri is that there were very high prices for a very long period of time. And unfortunately, we still had all of the reliability issues that we saw in Uri. And it sounds like, kind of, Travis, maybe your thinking has evolved and Texas's thinking has evolved to a place where we have to have some other mechanism to create that investment signal, that these super high ORDC-based prices didn't do what we had hoped that they would have. And we kind of, as a matter of policy, are shifting, whether it's PCM or something else, to kind of fill the gap that we've observed after URI. What are your thoughts there? Does that sound right? I think you've explained the concept of ORDC pricing well and operating reserves well. And I think you're in the ballpark on uh, what Texas is trying to do. I guess I'll say it seems that there is a resource adequacy issue now in Texas. There's a healthy debate going on over whether it's an operational reliability problem or a capacity problem. I think it probably is actually both. But like I said before, you do not observe, if you take out renewables, a sufficient number of resources to meet load in ERCOT during certain hours of the day, even now. And that problem, because ERCOT's load is growing significantly year on year, is going to become exacerbated, I think. Unless, again, you have a lot more demand flexibility that's doing the work of a genuinely two-sided market, which you would like to see. So yeah, I think you're right on. And I think there's something to be said for, just a full disclosure, I'm not the one approving investments in power plants or deciding how they operate. But I'll venture a guess to say that there is some kind of behavioral economics that come into play here where my lost opportunity of capturing scarcity rents is not the same behaviorally as my not performing on a contractual obligation to supply capacity. And if we were to extend this perhaps to the Eastern markets, my contractual obligation to supply capacity when I don't think the contract is going to be routinely called is not the same thing as my supplying capacity in a market design where there is a set of hours, as in the performance credit mechanism, which I know will be measured as to my availability during them. And so the work of these resource adequacy policies in aggregate is to try to create either forward contracts or ultimate settlements that are based on clearly measured resource performance during the most critical hours. And that's what everyone is aiming to. It certainly seems that no one is doing it perfectly. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder whether anyone is even doing it very well, but that is the problem that people are trying to solve. I guess from where I sit, my only issue with these constructs is we've seen sort of the PJM capacity market really struggle. And what happened during Winter Storm Uri and Winter Storm Elliott is really tied to gas availability. Like I think in the power world, we're trying to solve these issues, but whether it's an after-the-fact payment or a contractual obligation beforehand, if you can't get gas, you can't get gas. Or if you were put into a forced outage because you couldn't get gas until a certain time period, neither mechanism really helps you. And I think that's something we're going to need legislation to really step in or something, some more coordination, a coordination discussion we just haven't had before. 
No, I think that's an astute point. And if we go back to the last cycle where you had coal to gas switching in the market, I think one sort of undiscovered Easter egg that that transition left us was the system's increased dependency on natural gas and the idiosyncrasies of the natural gas market that we are only now discovering how important those could be in the electricity sector. So the electricity sector for the longest time has been run as truly providing an essential service, and any load that was shed is regarded as a complete and utter failure part of the electricity system. Whereas natural gas has, maybe now the way we talk about it, it's not viewed as sort of a voluntary fuel, but that is certainly how its market design is effectively set up. It is not an obligation to serve market. And you can simply look at the centralized energy markets. For example, when I make an offer into the day ahead market and my offer is accepted, if I then do not perform in real time, it doesn't matter what my excuse is for not performing. I am obligated to buy up my position at the real-time price. Whereas natural gas, if I don't perform on a bilateral contract that I have for gas, I can try to declare a force majeure, and then it doesn't become a binding financial obligation. It becomes a debate between the two sides' lawyers about whether or not I should have to pay liquidated damages. So those are two very different market designs. One is too bad, so sad essential service talk, and the other is just not at that level, candidly. The defenders of gas will say there are physical characteristics to the system that should cause those differences to arise, but I'm merely making the observation that they're very different. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I'm certainly not trying to also blame the gas industry because on one hand, we're telling them we need you now, drill more. And on the other hand, we're saying, please be gone in 10 years. And that's just a difficult business environment to operate in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to the challenges they have, for sure. And there are some conversations ongoing about electric gas coordination. I really hope that the people, a number that does not include me, who are deeply immersed in those conversations can actually surface one, two, or three good ideas. Because right now, what I've seen out of the conversations is an enormous laundry list of possible solutions. And when everything is on the menu, in a sense, nothing is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That boil the ocean type of approach is very, very rarely a, a pathway to success. And I mean, I agree with you. I mean, frankly, a big component of the theoretical energy transition here is going to be reliance on hydrogen. We're going to look at some of the gas plants that we have now, potentially be running them on hydrogen, green hydrogen, which is hydrogen that's been produced using some type of renewable technology. But at the end of the day, it still requires the same type of infrastructure as the natural gas market. So even if we made the unimaginable today happen and we kind of got off of natural gas altogether, a lot of these issues would still persist because you'd be using the same pipeline, same infrastructure, same trading strategies to move hydrogen through the through the system. So I agree. I mean, it's really something that I think that we inevitably have to reform. Whichever you think is the better model, power model or the gas model, we're going to be relying on this infrastructure for a long time going forward. And I think we have to change it. So I agree with all of those observations. I think it also takes us to kind of an interesting inflection point in the conversation, Travis. What do you think the perfect energy future looks like to you? There's no wrong answers. It's a whiteboard, safe space. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, not to rehash it, but it really is trying to get demand activated because we are going to end up spending, if we don't achieve that, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars 
building generation, transmission, and distribution resources that are only needed to be invested in to meet only a few hours of demand every year. And if instead you can pay demand to flatten itself out, to be offline during hours when it might otherwise peak, then you're going to be saving yourself a lot of money. So that, I think, is really a central question. The thing that I will allow myself to be a uh, kind of a devil's advocate on is some of the recent talk about electric transmission and how we need more and more and more of it. I'm just concerned about the innovation and nimbleness of an electric sector that would exist if 80% of a customer's bill is made up of non-bypassable transmission and distribution charges, and where only 20% is up to be substituted for by competitive innovations in generation or in demand side management. I think that's really concerning. And as I mentioned before, we're already in a world where delivery charges that had made up a smaller fraction of a consumer's bill are now oftentimes making up the majority. And so at some level, I'm sympathetic based on each of the hundred modeling studies about the clean energy transition that we all have read that more transmission is needed. At the same time, I just worry that if we do that, we are locking ourselves into a very particular way that this transition is going to look and work and you're going to end up smothering other innovations that might be a little more decentralized and not subject to rate-based cost-of-service regulation. I wish there was, and I think probably there is, a creative way to try to price more of that transmission into the cost of generation and make it more competitively substitutable. We do that with going back to natural gas. One of the things they have right is the fact that a natural gas pipeline does not actually have any guarantee that their cost of service is going to be met over the course of time. They rely on shipper subscriptions to be certificated in the first place, and then they rely on consistent shipments by shippers for their ultimate cost of service. And if they're, the maximum rates that FERC sets are ultimately having to be negotiated down, then that ends up being on the gas pipeline. So I worry that there's not as much of that going on in the electric transmission space where the business model is, as long as I can convince some kind of regulator to let me through the pearly gates and record this project into rate base, then my revenue model is guaranteed forever. No matter how valuable or what utilization factor, et cetera, my line might provide to society. So I will just be fully candid for your listeners. That's a heterodox view, but uh, I do think we kind of need to get to a place like that so that we're not just going back to the problems of the past and just having a captive set of consumers paying for things that may not all be the most valuable assets in the portfolio. So Travis, I know we've been covering a ton of ground here. I want to pause here, just see anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we get on here, any projects for NRG or anything on your list? I think we have covered a lot of ground. You might want to ask the magic wand question because I have a saucy answer for it if you would like to ask that question. <laughs> sure. Noha, do you want to ask that one? Yeah. So Travis, if you just had a magic wand to wave away problems create sort of the perfect situation in the energy world, what would you use your magic wand for? Well, Noha, it would require a very powerful magic wand, but it's bizarre, anachronistic, and unlike 
any other industry that there remain many states and localities where consumers of energy can't freely exercise their choice to hire or fire their supplier and to buy a product that's suited to their financial conditions or environmental preferences or even just their whims. I mean, I live in a utility service territory where my utility company is an affiliate of a regulated utility that was engaged in one of this decade's largest corruption scandals. And I just prefer, <laughs> if I can, not to do more and more business with them if I can choose an alternative provider. And I'm very glad that I have that choice. But it's remarkable to me that we're living in this monopoly regime in still the majority of states for electricity. And I just cannot imagine that the presence of gatekeeper monopolies is going to facilitate a faster and cheaper transition of the type that we're talking about. And it's been great that we are establishing wholesale markets that allow people to interconnect the resources that they would like to, which facilitates virtual power purchase agreements. But it's funny that you would be, say, in a place like Iowa, and you could cite a wind farm in Iowa, but then your retail load couldn't actually be supplied directly by the entity that owns that wind farm. You have to buy through the retail monopoly and kind of pretend that you're getting energy from that wind farm on some kind of physical basis. So this, to me, putting aside the magic wand, I suspect there are incremental things one can do to try to elevate customer choice, and it doesn't necessarily mean blowing the barn doors off and having everyone thrown into the deep end on competition like did happen 20 years ago. But there have to be ways to elevate customer preference and allow them to shop around the monopolies that currently serve them in certain jurisdictions that have not restructured. Yeah, I agree, Travis. The more we can empower the customer, the more we can incorporate the demand side. Basically, we're injecting competition where competition is very much needed. I couldn't agree more. And I think it also helps to solve some of the public policy debate, whether these markets are helping or hindering different public policies. Because if you allow for consumer choice within the markets, you can exercise whatever sort of type of discretion that you want, and you can kind of embrace and exercise your policies through those markets. So I agree. would love to see more opportunity for competition, both on the retail and wholesale side. And so with that, if you're thinking about, so that would be the ideal, wonderful future that you would fix with your magic wand there, Travis, what does the world look like in 20 years to you? What's the power industry look like? Imagine big here. Yeah, I think we're still going to be working candidly on a lot of the problems we've identified through the course of our discussion here today. I think we are going to have a power sector in 20 years time that is a lot more decarbonized than, say, our friends in the transportation sector. I mean, we've already made great progress versus other emitting sectors, and I think we're on course to continue a higher pace than they are likely to achieve. And then I think questions do arise about what is the compensation structure for seldom-used assets that are nevertheless necessary for reliability. I don't have sort of a clear end state in sight for that, but it's something we've talked about both here and that many smart people are talking about through the course of our conversation. And I will again just reiterate the idea of demand activation. Hopefully we exist in a world 20 years from now where all consumers are either facing some kind of time-varying rate, or if they're not, they're at least facing an incentive, a rebate for acts of being able to flex their demand at needed times. A participation should be voluntary, but it should be compensatory to consumers because it shouldn't just be big power generators that get paid to provide reliability. It should be demand that exercises flexible characteristics as well. 
I love it. Well, I think we've covered so much ground today. I think this is great for all of our listeners. And thank you very much, Travis, both for your your public service and your thoughts here today. Thank you, Noha and Mike. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. No Power.